This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, we can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here. I wanted to share with you a few interviews that I have done in the past, and this interview we did, uh, oh, maybe two years ago or so, I had a chance to speak with Andrew Yang. And this interview, this was sort of before Yang Gang blew up. It was before Andrew Yang became the king of UBI, and obviously a uh, successful presidential run, uh, you know, not winning the damn thing, but uh, certainly making a name for himself and getting the message out about how important a UBI is as a safety net for society. And obviously, as we're seeing what's going on uh, on a daily basis right now, I think more people are entertaining the idea of a universal basic income. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Andrew Yang and hail yourselves. All right, folks, I'm honored to have with me right now. He is the founder of Venture for America, the VFA. He is a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. He also was selected by the Obama administration in 2012 as a champion of change and in 2015 as a presidential ambassador of global entrepreneurship. Andrew Yang is with me. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is, you are the only candidate running uh, within the Democratic Party that is publicly advocating for a universal basic income. And I like what you call it, a freedom dividend. Can you explain a little bit uh, about what that means? How would that uh, take effect? I know you mentioned how the Roosevelt Institute has said that the uh, that a UBI would grow the economy by over two trillion bucks and annually create four point five million jobs. Now, how would that do that? Well, the the great thing is uh, anyone listening to this can just think about what you would do with a thousand dollars a month, and most people would spend that money locally in their communities on things like uh, car repairs they've been putting off and food and tutoring for their kids and the occasional night out. And that money just goes right into the Main Street economy. And all of those establishments then have to hire more people. The economy is busier. uh, And uh, that's how the Roosevelt Institute arrived at those projections that would create millions of jobs and grow the consumer economy by more than 10%. 
So now, obviously, the big question that everyone is going to have, you want to give $1,000 a month. Now, is that for families or is that per person? That's per adult. So if there was, there was a household with two adults, that household would get $24,000 a year. Okay, great. And of course, 12000 that's just beneath the poverty line. Um, but that, of course, is coming to fr- for free from uh, the government. Now, of course, the question is, how does this work as far as pay? I know that you've proposed something that's called a value-added tax uh, that would then uh, sort of pay uh, for this freedom dividend. Can you explain a little bit what the value-added tax is and how it would come or what would it mani- how would it manifest itself in reality? What would it look like? Sure, so I like to use Amazon as the most uh, prominent example where you probably saw the headlines that Amazon reported zero in federal tax liability last year, despite record profits of over $11 billion. Uh, And Jeff Bezos has a similar situation where he has over $100 billion in Amazon stock, but there's been no taxable event. So Mm. the the issue you have to ask yourself as, uh, as a society is, how are we going to get through this era of 30% of malls closing and trucks driving themselves if the biggest winners like your Amazons and Apples and Googles and Facebooks don't have to pay any taxes. Right. So what you do is you look around the world and you find that every other advanced economy has adopted a value-added tax that is very, very difficult to game. So after I'm president, we pass the value-added tax and then the American people get a slice of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad, every robot truck mile, a value-added tax essentially um, is not a point of sale or consumption of goods, but at every part of the supply chain. Right. So the reason why other com- other countries have already adopted it is that it's very, very hard for the Amazons and Googles and Facebooks of the world to gain their way out of. So it's interesting, and I want to get to your uh, – I want to talk about small businesses with you and what gets you so excited about entrepreneurship and things like that here in a second. But when it comes to the value-added tax – is it similar to what is going on in Germany, for example, where they tax corporations that have robots that were previously positions held by humans as if those robots were people? Is, is it sort of like that where you would tax? Because the automation, and I, you are the only one who is really nailing this, automa- it's not immigrants. It's, it's, it, it is automation. That is what is crushing us. So what does that look like in real life? Is it a taxation on automation? It really is. Uh, and so what Germany's done with robots, I was looking into whether we could do here. But in our society, it's actually very hard to determine even what is a robot. Mm. Like if, if CVS decides to replace a cashier with an iPad, are we going to tax them on that? Mm. Um, if you replace a thousand call center workers with artificial intelligence, um, you know, like, do you have some sort of tax on a per former employee basis? It's very, very hard to measure and administer. Right. So a value-added tax simplifies it and makes it so that just for value-changing hands, which it would in each of these examples, uh, then the American people get a slice. Interesting. And what do you say to some of the critics who would say something? You know, I love your conversation about socialism and capitalism, where we're at right now, marrying the two. And we can talk about that uh, here in a second, marrying the two and getting the best out of both political philosophies. How do you square this with someone that would say it's impossible uh, for the U.S. government to do that? Obviously, we're the largest economy in the world, 19 trillion bucks. 
How, uh, what would you give them a quick elevator pitch, if you will? Um, because obviously, when you're on the road and you're shaking hands and uh, and doing t- talking to these folks, that's going to be a common question. Oh yeah, and I talk about it all the time that we are the richest and most advanced economy in the history of the world. As you say, our economy is now more than 19 trillion dollars, up five trillion in the last 12 years alone. Mm. We can easily afford a dividend of $1,000 a month for every American adult, particularly because so much of that money is going to get spent right here in our Main Street economies around the country. The great thing about it uh, in terms of its real-life impact, it makes children and families healthier and stronger. It empowers millions of American women who right now are in exploitative or abusive jobs or relationships to be able to improve their situations and walk away. It helps people in the LGBTQ community because people of that uh, community are more likely to be fired from jobs and kicked out of the house. And so it gives them the ability to become more resilient and able to move to better situations. It helps communities of color who have historically lower access to education, resources and opportunities uh, to be able to improve their situations as well. So it addresses a lot of the needs that we already know we have in our society Uh, And when people say, well, we can't afford that, one thing I say is, look, we printed $4 trillion for the banks uh, during the bailout, and there was no inflation as a result of that. And in this case, the money would go much more effectively and efficiently into the economy. Everyone knows that right now, 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, 57% can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. So we know that if we put this money into Americans' hands, it's going to go right back into the economy. And speak a little bit, because what's so unique about you, and I want to talk about uh, Venture for America here in a second, but you're a small business owner yourself, or a business owner, I don't even know how small it is, um, but you have paid paychecks, you have signed, you know, you have signed budgets, you understand how to make sure um, everything is on the up and up. Uh, how has that business experience um, been able to translate itself in this political realm? Well, you know, I, I was a small business owner for years, and I love small businesses. I think small businesses are the lifeblood of the economy in many communities. Yeah. And if they can create jobs for people that people enjoy, it's really uh, the best path forward. Um, and so uh, a lot of American voters really respond very positively to that, because when I meet with small business owners in Ohio or Iowa or New Hampshire, I naturally speak their language. Right. And one of, one of the the issues with some of the policies that are being put forward, like I agree 100% with the spirit of a $15 an hour minimum wage. Sure. Um, but the the reality for many small businesses is that they're paying less than that, let's call it 9 or $10 an hour, and that change actually would be very significant in terms of their bottom line. And so they'd cut back shifts right. um, or they, they might, uh, you know, they, they might try and make do with fewer people. It's much better to pass a universal basic income of $1,000 a month and just get money directly into people's hands. Yep. And then the small business owner benefits because their customers have more money instead of trying to get money to people through the the minimum wage itself. Though, again, I'm for the spirit of a higher minimum wage. No one should be working full time in this country uh, and be poor. Uh, but some of our policies kind of imagine that small businesses have the wherewithal to do things that some of them may not have. Well, uh, Mr. Yang, thank you so much for bringing that up because that was actually going to be my next question. Would this offset 
or make it not needed to do a $15 minimum wage because, you know, obviously I completely agree with you with the spirit. I think workers need more money. They need more rights. Amazon is criminal the way that they treat their employees. Mom and pop businesses, you have to understand, and I'm sure you do, when you run a muffin joint, all of a sudden $15 minimum wage, well, before it was seven fifty, but now the porter has to get $15 minimum wage if you if you run a bar. And now the, the chef, if you have a restaurant, is going to be like, I'm not making the same as the porter. So now they want 25 and it goes up exponentially exponentially so it really isn't just you know a $15 minimum wage and I think one of the ironies is that allows for Amazon that allows for Walmart that allows for these huge corporations who can afford well afford $15 minimum wages to just move in and destroy everything yeah and and so it's much more efficient just to put money directly into the hands of workers uh, through something like a citizen's dividend and the great thing too is that that also encompasses people who are doing work that right now is not recognized by our society as work. Right. And the example I use is my wife who's at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic. It's not like a higher minimum wage helps her right. um, because her work right now is not considered by society as an actual job, mm-hmm. um, even though I would argue that the work she's doing is as important or more important than um, the work that I was doing as a corporate lawyer, for example, that was very remunerative. I was yeah. a lawyer for five unhappy months, so please don't <laughs> look at me and be like, I didn't know that dude was a lawyer. I was, it was five months in like the late 90s. Um, but, but, but I was just using that as an example. It's that the market is a very imperfect determinant of the value of our work. Uh, and it could be that there are many things that we want to reward that a minimum wage would not touch. Man, I'll tell you, as someone who just wants to be a stay-at-home dog dad and just kind of work on my little writings and things like that, I love this idea. Um, and it's, so it's not just for uh, you know, it's, it's for any stay-at-home jobs are jobs. You know, it's not uh, that's not just a common cliche. So, and and, and to, your, to your point, I just want to say this too. This would be an explosion of arts, creativity, yeah. journalism, caregiving coaching, right. nurturing, like all of the core human activities that we want to do would flourish in a country where we had this dividend. And that's what yeah. I'm going to make happen as president in 2021. Well, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. We talk about new economies. Obviously, the old argument or the old, um, I guess, sort of analogy is in the 19, in 1900, it was mostly farm work. It was mostly an agriculture-based society. Now it's 3% is, is farm work. And you would just ask those people in 1900, be like, so there's only 3% of these jobs left. What are you going to do? They wouldn't understand that we need coders. We need, you know, a whole series of other professions that simply an Uber driver that simply did not exist. Um, so Etsy, uh, these small businesses that people can create from their home. I do agree with you. I think that is the future for people to, uh, to create happiness in their lives and steady income. Yeah. And if you look at Etsy as an example, um, and I use it in my book, Fewer than 15% of businesses on Etsy produce anywhere near like a living wage and virtually none of them um, have uh, insurance benefits. Right. Um, and, and so Etsy can be our future if we're not presenting these uh, visions that it's going to be the equivalent of a full-time income. And that's why what, something like having a universal basic income of $12,000 a year then makes it much more feasible because then if you have two adults in the house, $24,000 – then your Etsy business doesn't need to bring in, uh, you know, fifty thousand dollars to be able to to make it viable. You can right. produce things you love, and if it produces 
uh, $25,000 worth of revenue in a given year, you can still live a very happy, productive life. Right. Um, And and so that's the kind of thing that we should be making more possible for people without uh, pretending that folks are going to be able to produce a full income um, right now, uh, you know, from from their home in many, many situations. Well, let's stick with jobs. Then I want to ask a little bit about healthcare uh, because that's going to be uh, extremely well expressed here in 2019. So Venture for America, what is VFA? What inspired you to get involved with this or create this? And uh, what's the ultimate mission? So it was 2011, and the financial crisis had just transpired, and I was very despondent about the direction of the country. And one of the problems I saw was that many smart, ambitious, enterprising young people were heading to Wall Street and big consulting firms in Silicon Valley. Right. And so I thought, well, what would be a better use of their talents and energy? And so I created Venture for America to help train entrepreneurs in places like Detroit, Cleveland, New Orleans, Birmingham, Baltimore, with the idea, and you know, in a way, it was really a response to the financial crisis, but in many ways, it sort of presaged the rise of Donald Trump. Um, I spent the last six years working in Michigan, Ohio, Missouri, Alabama, uh, and we helped create several thousand jobs in those cities. Right. That's why I was uh, uh, appointed this ambassador of entrepreneurship by the Obama administration. Um, And so my goal was to try and help balance the uh, brain drain out of many regions and reverse Mm. it and hopefully channel more uh, energy and resources to places that could use a boost. Absolutely. I think that is complete. That is that's wonderful. That's the Lord's work, because we we travel all around this country uh, and the world traveling around for our live shows. And we just see certain places that have just been destroyed you know, decimated by the economic situation now. And we talk about Wall Street might be going up, up, and up, and all the numbers are coming in. This economy is great. Well, there's a lot of folks who aren't seeing it. And I think those people are looking for someone to speak up for them a little bit. And oftentimes, as we mentioned earlier, as I mentioned earlier, immigrants get a scapegoat. But can you talk a little bit about the correlation in maybe areas that supported Donald Trump and the rise of technology. Is there a direct correlation between unemployment or less employment and the rise of automation? Yeah, there's a direct relationship where if you look at the voting district data, there's a straight line up between the adoption of industrial robots in a, in a region and the movement towards Donald Trump. Mm. And again, if you look at where we decimated these manufacturing jobs. It was in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, the entire set of swing states that Trump needed to win. Um, And now, unfortunately, we're going to do the same thing to retail jobs, call center jobs, truck driving jobs, fast food jobs, and on and on. Um, So I had the same experience you did, where when I went to other parts of the country, I was blown away by the disparities between Missouri and Manhattan or uh, San Francisco Um, and Ohio, where when you go between those two places and you've had this experience, it sounds like, you feel like you're traversing dimensions and decades and not just a couple of time zones. Uh, And it gets even more extreme when you leave those metropolitan areas and go to rural communities on the outskirts. So when, when people think about why Donald Trump's our president, there is rampant suffering and financial insecurity in this country many people feel left behind right. and you can see it in the darkest of stats where suicides are at a record high mm. 
drug overdoses, eight an hour, um, to the point wow. where it's actually depressing our our life expectancy has declined for the last three years as a country. Uh, the first time that's happened in a hundred years. And a hundred years ago, it was the Spanish flu of wow. 1918. We are actually in Spanish flu territory. And is that mostly suicide? Is that the reason that we're seeing life expectancy go down? Is it mostly self-harm and suicide? It is mostly deaths of despair, which are drug overdoses and suicides. Wow. Both of those have overtaken vehicle deaths for the first time in American history wow. as causes of death. So we are disintegrating by the numbers. We are falling apart. And anyone who wants to see why Donald Trump became president, all you have to do is go to some of these communities uh, and you will see very, very clearly. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned because I watched a lot of your YouTube interviews. And um, so you mentioned Americans and kind of to that point when we travel around and you just say, oh, my, I would love to pick everyone up and be like, you know, let's get working again. But there are no jobs. This mindset of scarcity, of scarcity. You mentioned a mindset of scarcity uh, within the American people. We don't have enough. There isn't enough money to go around, all these things. But as you also mentioned, we got a $19 trillion economy, biggest economy in the world. Can you explain a little bit what you mean when you say mindset of scarcity? Yeah, so we've all experienced a mindset of scarcity in our own ways. If you can't pay your bills, you start making all of these time money trade-offs where you think, oh, if I pay this, I can't pay that. And maybe if I take extra time to do this, it'll be cheaper. It'll save me this much. And when you start getting into that mindset, you actually have less bandwidth to be able to make rational decisions. Right. Studies have shown that being in this mindset will decrease your functional intelligence by 13 points or one standard deviation. Wow. And so if you feel like America is getting less rational, less reasonable, uh, more subject to bad ideas and even more xenophobic and racist. Right. It's because we've introduced pervasive financial insecurity into our country where, again, 57 percent can't pay an unexpected $500 bill and 78 percent are living paycheck to paycheck. Wow. And so 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 that is the real challenge. The, the reason I'm so passionate about this freedom dividend or universal basic income of $1,000 a month is that we need to get the boot off of people's throats. Yeah. And we need to let people think clearly and then after they think clearly, then we'll be able to make progress on the big challenges like climate change right. and other 21st century challenges. Um, but the first big move we have to make is we have to evolve in our notions of human value and right. what work looks like that's not just show up in nine to five. We yeah. have to evolve past this labor subsistence model where I trade my time for a certain amount of money I need to survive. And then we do that over and over again right. because increasingly – you know, if the trucks start driving themselves, like what are three and a half million uh, former truckers really going to do? Right. Exactly. Being a retail worker is the most common job in this country. And 30 percent of malls are going to close in the next five years. So we need to grow up. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's really the, the central mission of my campaign is to try and help us confront the real challenges of today. Yeah. My father was a truck driver. And uh, so that that really hits home. I mean, and that's that's a job that's extremely difficult to do. And they make 70k a year if it's a really good company yeah no they can they uh, do quite well and so so the can. delta the drop-off is going to be very high but i do want to, to talk about the opposite of a mindset of scarcity and that's a mindset of abundance hmm. which is what many entrepreneurs have it's when you think if you make an investment it's going to pay off uh, that you can build something and it'll just get better over time right and and we are losing that mindset and that's what we need to instill in more Americans and communities. And the great thing is if we accomplish that, then we'll give rise to a whole new level of entrepreneurship, 
and creativity and innovation and artistic pursuits. Right. Uh, but, but we need to come together as a country and say, this is the direction we want to go. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm running for president to make that uh, case the American people. Well, and I'm really grateful that you are running for president. And hopefully, you know, when you are on center stage for these debates, I think what you're saying is going to resonate with a lot of people and you're going to surprise a lot of people. One of the quotes that you referenced, and I forget who you quoted in this reference, but I thought it was really interesting um, regarding capitalism, because I want to just ask you just briefly about how we get socialism and capitalism to find each other on Tinder, go on a date and decide to get married. Uh, yes. You say, we never, um, the thing about capitalism is we never knew capitalism was going to get eaten by its son technology. What does that really mean? And how can socialism, like what sectors of our economy would socialism be good for? And then what sectors is just capitalism is the only way to go? Yeah, so that quote is from a guy named Eric Weinstein. Um, and what he's talking about is that many of the economic relationships we take for granted with capitalism are now breaking down. Mm. So here's a set of relationships we used to take for granted. If I build a highly successful, profitable company, I'm going to need to hire lots of people. Right. And then when I hire lots of people, I'm going to need to pay them and treat them moderately well and make it so that they can afford to buy my goods. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to care about the communities that we live and work in. Right. Today, I can create a highly profitable company that does not employ lots of people. If it does employ people, I can make them all gig workers and contractors. And I don't care if they can afford my goods because I'm selling around the world to, right. to people that may or may not be in my own backyard. So all of these assumptions we make about relationships are dying before our eyes. Yeah. And so what we need to do is we need to take the best of both worlds uh, in terms of capitalism and socialism. So people regard me as championing Medicare for all, single-payer health care, which I do, and people associate that with being a democratic socialist. I'm not interested in labels, but it's completely obvious to me that we need to have a single-payer public option in this country to both bring down costs and expand access in health care. So that's something that people would associate with socialists. In terms of capitalism, uh, we need to try and harness the power of the markets to actually improve how we are doing our mental health, our physical health, right. our environmental health, uh, the levels of engagement we have with work. The problem is right now we're chasing GDP and capital efficiency and stock market prices when none of those things have any relationship to how 80% of Americans are doing. Right. And so what we do is we harness capitalism, but we say, look, the purpose is not raise GDP. The purpose is to raise our quality adjusted life expectancy. The purpose is to raise childhood success rates. The purpose is to improve our mental health and bring down our overdose rate. And then, right. if you, and then if you use those as your measurements, then you can get entrepreneurs and organizations and companies innovating in ways that actually help us instead of, frankly, ways that marginalize us right. and make us less relevant. Because the smartest humans, the smartest radiologists cannot out-diagnose an artificial intelligence that can see shades of gray on a film that the human eye cannot and can reference millions of data points when a doctor can only reference thousands. Right. So, it, so it's no longer about some kind of uh, archaic notion of meritocracy anymore. Right. Like, uh, you know, we, we have to try to evolve our very definitions of what progress looks like. Yeah. And that sounds very difficult. It sounds very futuristic, but it's actually pretty easy. We made up GDP almost 100 years ago during the Great Depression. 
And so when I'm president in 2021, I'm just going to go down the street to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics and say, hey, guys, GDP has not been updated in 100 years. So now we're going to update it and we're going to include childhood success rates and environmental yeah. standards and uh, mental health. And then we're going to build an American scorecard. And then I'm going to present on those uh, levels and measurements every year at the State of the Union. And then we're going to drive resources to try and improve them. We're going to reward companies that are able to demonstrate that they're actually helping communities. Because I, I know CEOs and even the best of them feel like their hands are tied because they have to optimize for profitability every quarter. Right. Uh, and so if you say, look, you can optimize for more things now. Like if you do something great in the community and we can tell that it's real, then we can give you a giant uh, tax break for that or a giant, um, you know, like way to decrease Thank your. You. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So when it comes to Medicare for all, just lastly, um, how do you what's the best way to implement that, do you think? Because I know there's a couple of different ideas as far as how would you do it? Yeah. So um, I think that you need to have a public option. Um, that negotiates lower rates. And the, the simplest way to do that is to lower the eligibility age for Medicare um, over time. You have a transition where more and more people are part of the pool. And if you are representing the American people, you kind of need younger, healthier workers because right. then it breaks down the, um, the rates very, very fast. I would not outlaw private insurance, but the, the fact is most private insurers would disappear except for a handful of uh, concierge type gold plated insurers that uh, have wealthy corporate clients. But having that private insurance exist, um, one, it's America and you know that stuff's going to exist, right. in my opinion. Of course. <laughs> but, but there's actually a public benefit because if you have uh, parallel resources working on various innovations over time, the public's going to benefit from that. So to me, the, the move is to lower the eligibility age over time and have a robust public option. Uh, don't make private insurance illegal, uh, but most of it would disappear over time. Right. Andrew Yang, a Democratic candidate for president. Um, really awesome speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I would assume you have a very busy schedule right now because, you know, you're getting your name out there. And thank you so much for coming on uh, this show and talking to our audience. Such a pleasure. And if anyone wants to find out more, go to yang2020.com. I've got 75 different um, policy proposals. I'm not just the universal basic income guy. Right. And uh, if you'd like to see me on this debate stage uh, in June, if you go to our website and make even a dollar donation, you can be part of us reaching the threshold we need. But we're going to get there. Um, we're getting thousands of donations a day, which I'm very, very grateful for. Awesome. So we should break through the threshold um, uh, by the end of March, it looks like. No, and I looked at your website and I was so happy it had policies because so many of them that I've looked at just have the donate button with nothing else. And I'm like, who am I giving to? Like, what is happening? Um, so thank you for being so transparent with your ideas and not being afraid of of sharing them with everyone and backing them up with um, with actual information that that uh, makes them seem completely reasonable and rational because, uh, you know, it's an uphill battle to find rationality in this country right now. So uh, thank you so much. No problem. Andrew Yang, thank you, my man. I'll see you soon. No doubt. Great to be here. Thank you. All right, there it was, my interview with Andrew Yang. I hope you found it to be entertaining and informative. We'll continue to share with you some interviews from our past. And, uh, yeah, anyway, just anything to get us through here and keep us entertained and maybe slightly less dumb than we were the day before. That's sort of the goal. Um, okay, everyone, thanks for listening. Hail yourselves. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. 
For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.